0: and welcome to She Started It, the podcast that explores female entrepreneurship through the eyes of an inspiring guest every week. I'm your host, Angelica Malin, editor-in-chief of About Time magazine and founder of the She Started It live festivals. From fashion to fitness, law to entrepreneurship, this series of She Started It will explore what it takes to be a female trailblazer today. Get ready to be totally inspired. Today's podcast has brought to you in partnership with Tide. Tide is the business current account designed to support small business owners like you. With no daunting paperwork and no monthly fees, you could open an account in minutes. They couldn't make it simpler, trusted by over 100,000 businesses. Download the Tide app to get started today. Georgina Kirby is the co-founder of Vine Health, a digital platform that leverages data science and behavioral science to help cancer patients track their treatments, understand their symptoms, and connect with others going through cancer. In empowering patients, the Vine Health platform gathers real-world patient-generated data that is crucial to pharmaceutical drug development, licensing, and reimbursement. In short, the app is designed to help more people maximize their physical and mental well-being during cancer therapy. Having completed a master's in medical robotics at Imperial College London, Georgina went on to work as a data scientist for McLaren Applied Technologies and as head of data science for touch surgery before meeting her co-founder Raina Patel. The duo raised £80,000 in pre-seed investment to launch the app and are now in the process of seeking further funding. Wow, I mean that sounds absolutely amazing to me. Can you tell us perhaps in
1: layman's terms what Vine Health does? Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess the the, the long short of it is that we want to use technology and the advances in technology to empower people who are going through cancer to better manage their treatments from home. Um, the majority of the time that they spend is outside of clinics and away from their doctors and their nurses. Um, and the way that we can now measure certain things about our lifestyle through wearables and smartphones, um, but also quantify how um, quantify things around your side effects or your symptoms and the medications that you take, uh, these advances in technology can help people to better manage their care outside of And the I
0: system. suppose understand how the medication is working and the treatments and
1: having more data on that. Absolutely, so um, actually what what Raina and I believe and what, what we know from our research is that the way um, a person behaves in their everyday life, so how much exercise they do, how much sleep they can get, how they take their medications, how they manage their symptoms and their side effects like pain, nausea, fatigue. Those things have the biggest impact on a patient's quality of life and on their survival in the long term. Um, And actually, those behaviors are really complex to manage when it comes to cancer treatment. Patients are on multiple medications, they're getting side effects and symptoms from the cancer itself, but also from those medications. and to manage those things as, as well as their lifestyle and as well as their exercise, their sleep, their nutrition, what they eat, what they drink, that's actually a really complex thing to manage. And the advice online is very generic. There's not a good way to quantify what you should do and what's gonna help you as, as an individual. Um, and that's where machine learning and, and behavioral science can help us to understand what's right for each individual um, and to help patients better manage that. You know the these uh, debilitating side effects mm-hmm. and, and their lifestyle. And to put that into context, until
0: Vine Health was invented, what what were we using to measure these things?
1: Yeah, p- uh, people have told us that they are tracking the stuff on paper in their iPhone notes, um, all over the place, really, but not in a way where they can really um, measure and visualize how um, these things are changing over time and how they can actually. Um, see trends in that data and and even being able to tell their doctor what they're going through Um, a lot of the time a patient will see their doctor every few weeks or even every couple of months as a follow-up and when your doctor asks you how you've been over the past few weeks you kind of you tend to give um, an answer about how you've been in the last day or last couple of days and actually that kind of data is not something that a patient can Quite easily, you know, patients aren't very good historians. They don't really go back in time very well and and tell really detailed breakdown of what's happened. And so doctors can now use this technology to help patients better understand at what day was their pain, you know, really bad. Maybe it was day three of chemotherapy. Maybe it was day five of that cycle. Um, And this is not something that patients have been able to to show their doctors or nurses. It's amazing, and
0: it's an amazing way to build a body of data to then use in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think where this becomes really exciting is that it's it's not just about helping patients improve their quality of life and survival. Um, you know, that, that is one part, and if we can do that, then then that, that's incredible. But what actually we can help to do is change the way that drugs and new therapies are developed as well. So this big body of data um, can is it, actually really crucial to pharmaceutical companies and, and drug development companies um, because what they can do is start to understand how their drugs are affecting people's quality of life outside of clinical trials. Mm. Um, So drugs are developed within clinical trials at the moment. Um, Shockingly, only three to 4% of of patients who are going through cancer ever get through um, and onto clinical trials and onto new drugs and new therapies. Um, So these drugs are developed for a very narrow part of the population. They're not developed for the 96% of, of people out in the population and so that means that drug companies find it hard to understand different side effects and symptoms that are associated with these new drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And even um, having a diverse kind of clinical trial of of different genders, different ethnicities, that's not something that um, pharmaceutical companies do very well. Um, And so I think what we want to be able to do with this big data set is understand how what the, beha- what the behavioural factors are in um, how people take their drugs, how they behave around them, what lifestyle factors are associated with certain um, side effects and help to mitigate those really debilitating side effects that mm. stop patients taking their drugs and, and ultimately reduce their survival absolutely fascinating so i'd like
0: to unpick this a little bit can we go back um so i asked you um in advance of this recording to provide me with a couple of turning points that led you to where you are Mm -hmm. where you are now
1: um will you tell me a little bit about the first one yeah absolutely so i think that the first one that really um was a moment well how do i say this (laughs) um so the first turning point that i i wrote down and thought about carefully was I thought that I was destined for a career in banking or accounting, so I studied maths. Um, it was kind of the only real, the only couple of industries that ever came to speak to us and tried to recruit us into, um, into their graduate schemes, and so I thought, yeah, great, I'm going to go and join a bank, and I went to work um, for one over three months in the summer, and it wasn't terrible but it wasn't something that i really felt like i wanted to continue with and and wanted to build a career in um i found myself kind of picking up the newspaper or going online and reading articles that weren't anything to do with the financial markets i'd always read about new technology and i'd always read about healthcare um and it was something that i realized quite quickly that i didn't really have a passion to kind of stick in that financial industry um but that i didn't really know where else i should go (laughs) Um, so I think it, for me it was really important moment to say no to something to rule to rule it out essentially. Um, but it was pretty tough to like not know where else I could mm. go. So I went back and did my final year, um, having said I would I wouldn't be going into banking or even into accounting. And don't get me wrong, those are great careers to have. It just wasn't something that that I thought was right for me. Um, I actually then applied to law school. <laughs> um, realized that I hated writing essays, and thought, okay, that probably wasn't the best idea. Um, And then I thought long and hard about where I could go, and I actually emailed, um, so I did work experience at McLaren when I was 16, um, as part of the racing team, and and in the wind tunnel, I kept in touch with the guy that I worked with um, when I was there, and I emailed him and said, do you ever take people that aren't engineers into McLaren, and, you know, could a mathematician come and do something for you guys? And he was like, absolutely, let me put you in touch with, with this lady who's just started McLaren Applied Technologies, which was essentially a startup within the McLaren brand. Um, and that she turned out to be um, my boss and brought me in and she said, yeah, great, we're um, actually hiring for data scientists at the moment. And I remember thinking, what's a data scientist? But great, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come in and, and do an interview. And so I joined there as data scientist and and it was a job that I absolutely just loved and jumped out of bed every day to go to and um, really great to be working in a number of different industries. And so I think, you know, for, for me, that was a big learning point about ruling things out and not being afraid to say no to something that doesn't quite fit. It doesn't fit, right. Because you could go. have do- gone down
0: that path of,
1: of using maths and
0: going for accountancy and probably just wouldn't have been happy.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it would have been a great career, but it's, I had certain goals and I always knew, I guess this comes to like later, later down the line, but I always knew that I wanted to start a business and I wanted to um, run a company and I don't think that that would have prepared me in the way um, that hopefully I'm more prepared now to do in an in mm-hmm. industry that I really care about and that I really um, you know, want to be in throughout the rest of my career. And so that was something that um, I think was a really important decision point to make.
0: On the day-to-day, what does a data scientist actually
1: do? Yeah, so I tend to think about data scientists as this combination of programming and computer science is the first. Um, the second is mathematics and the third is understanding a business or a domain. So um, you know you've got to be super technical um, but you've also got to be able to communicate your results and what you do to the right kind of person within your business or the right client. So I always find the best data scientists are the ones that can get into the code and can actually you know, write the machine learning algorithms, but can also talk about um, how they work and what they do and what that means for the business to, um, to a layman. Um, often actually data science gets confused with business intelligence or BI. Um, so it's, BI is very much more about using historic data within a business understanding what bu- business decisions were made and how we can improve um, whereas data science is more about using the data and looking forwards and predicting the future essentially mm. um, so how can we use that data to predict what's going to happen um, and then you know make the right decisions about what we should and shouldn't do um, and so I think you know data science is, is, covers such a broad area from Exploring the data, cleaning the data, to writing these complex machine learning algorithms, um, and making those predictions.
0: And when you were doing this job, were there other women, or like lots of other women who are data scientists at the
1: company? Um, so I was actually the first, um, te- well, the first female technical hire aside from my boss, um, and she's fantastic, and she was a great role model in. Um, she was technical director and CTO and she she was just a fantastic person to have mentoring me throughout but I was that the first female hire within that team and it was that way for a long time Um, I don't feel like there were ever kind of um, I don't feel like there were ever any real gender issues when I was working within this this team of guys I think everyone was really inclusive and it was a fantastic place to work, but there was definitely a minority. Mm. Um, and I think it's something that's changed a lot now at, at McLaren and um, they're bringing in a lot more females. And I think just the, the nature of it coming from Formula One, they mm. got a lot more applications from from men. A lot of people came from the racing team into the Applied Technologies. Um, but I think they are really making an effort to hire a lot more, mm. a lot more females. Um, and it's important to do so because if you don't have many women in those roles and even women in leadership, you're gonna find it hard to, to recruit. Mm. Um, where
0: do you think we're at with STEM at the moment? Like, do you think it's come a long way or do you think there's still a lot to do with getting more women into those those areas?
1: Yeah, um, I think I think in London we're really lucky to be in a place where it does feel like people are really pushing for good diversity and, and gender equality within, um, within tech and within companies in general I've not often felt you know despite the fact that there is an imbalance and there there are pay gaps and there is a long way to go I've still felt like people are trying to make the right moves Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of getting more women into STEM I think it's really important that we bring it back to really young children because if you're not if you're not telling them what they could do with technology and why that could be a great career for them and why that's an exciting thing or exciting route to take um it's a very formative time where people make decisions about what they like and what they don't like and even what they're confident with and what areas they lack confidence in and even what's cool and what's not cool Mm -hmm. and if you try and um I think it's important to give young kids practical examples of, of technology and actually technology is used everywhere so it's not this kind of male uh, dominated engineering thing that is a scary place to be it's very much more you know there's tons of there's tons of femtech going on Mm. there's tons of um, tech for good and I think there are a lot of stats around how females in general want to work in technology but social good technology and that's why there are so many more women in health tech than Mm. there are in other um, tech industries and so it's I think it's about using those right examples to to I guess um, get young girls excited about what they mm. could do and see themselves in these positions. Um, do
0: you think there was anything different in your upbringing that made you go into studying maths and wanting to go into technology?
1: Oh that's a hard question
0: because um, I'm just thinking that I feel like I was encouraged to do creative like yeah. to, to do English to do drama and I don't I'm not putting it on my parents but I don't remember being particularly Kind of advised that a career that included kind of math science would would be as good an option. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But then also my interests were naturally towards the creative yeah. stuff, and I ended up being a journalist. So it's not. Um, yeah. But I wonder if perhaps I was like subconsciously not encouraged enough yeah. to pursue
1: those things, and I was kind of scared of those areas a little bit. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of. Um, I think it, a lot of it comes down to a confidence issue and something that. Um, you know, my mom always talks about the fact that she was terrified of, of um, doing maths and that she didn't feel like it was something that she could do, but um, she absolutely could and it was just something that no one ever encouraged her to do better at and everyone told her that she couldn't do it. And actually, f- very early on in my schooling, I was told that I was a sweet little girl, but really I didn't know anything and, and I couldn't really, I couldn't do any of the maths, I couldn't do any of the science. Um, and that was a point at which my parents were like, right, we're gonna fix this. Mm. Um, and I moved to a school that had this great math teacher and I knocked on her door every single day, lunchtime, uh, break times, and I was like, I don't understand, I don't understand. And it was by far my worst subject. Um, and so I think having my parents push me to, to try and change something that they fundamentally believe was not right, you know, how can a little like six-year-old how, how can they know that the six-year-old cannot do maths mm. and um, is not capable? But actually, they really believe that that wasn't the case and that it was a case of um, being in the right environment and being encouraged in the right way, which is something that my mom hadn't really ever mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that really made a difference and that was the time at which I had this turning point around, um, enjoying it and actually saying oh this is something that I can do that I am good at and I do enjoy it and I think if I'd never enjoyed it I wouldn't have ever gone into a career in maths or science or technology because so many people are overwhelmed by maths
0: the idea of like having to even add stuff up makes people sweat you know and I've often it's a bit similar to driving I suppose that you have a bad driving instructor and it can just totally knock your confidence and you think I can't do this
1: and you you build up the story in your head absolutely and I think a lot of the time it also people joke about um being terrible at maths and it, f- it feels like a cool thing and it's almost something that people bond over oh I I'm so bad at maths oh me too I'm also so bad at maths but it's not and, and I think that becomes an okay thing for girls to share um and it's something that people have a lot more potential than they realize mm. and it's it comes down to a confidence thing and not being encouraged in the right way and not being supported to actually um you know to actually get better and and pe- everyone has that potential to mm. get better but it's a confidence thing and it's about being encouraged in the right way yeah um, absolutely yeah That's amazing.
0: <laughs> today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with tide the uk's fastest growing business current account provider Feel confident in your first steps as a founder with smart financial tools and 24-7 in-app support. With easy invoicing and accounting integrations, Tide is an alternative to traditional banks for small businesses like yours. Spend less time on admin and more time on growing your business. Tide are also committed to helping women in business and are offering our listeners £50 when you open a Tide account and deposit £50. Just visit www.tide.co forward slash she started it to get started. If you're feeling inspired by this week's episode and are thinking of starting your own business, why not come along to the next She Started It Live in London? Taking place on the 13th and 14th of March 2020 at Crypt on the Green in Farringdon, this two-day flagship festival will give you all the advice and inspiration you need to supercharge your career with over 75 incredible speakers. Book on Eventbrite now by searching for She Started It Live and use the code SHESTARSTIT10 for 10% off. So to come back to it, so you yes. um, you went from McLaren and then well, how did you find yourself interested in healthcare?
1: Yeah, so I joined McLaren as a data scientist. Um, I worked on a number of different industries, um, from oil and gas to transport and, and rail, um, and then bits in healthcare as well, so I we were using Formula One technology and applying it into different industries, and that's kind of um, how McLaren worked, and I remember People talking about how we can monitor cars around a track with tons of different sensors and and optimize the way that car goes around a track, and we can do the same with patients, and we can monitor them remotely, and we can collect all this data about what they're doing, and we can optimize the way in which um, their healthcare is delivered and the way in which you know they they receive certain treatments. And I guess a lot of this forms the basis of what we do at Vine as well. Um, but I remember doing my first healthcare project and thinking wow, this is, we can really change people's lives here with technology mm. and this technology that's used in this elite sport. Um, and I love Formula One, but it's not exactly kind of social good. Mm. <laughs> but what we can use in Formula One can be applied into areas that can really make a difference for people's lives. Um, and at the time I was working for, for this, this lady that I talked about before, um, Dr. Caroline Hargrove, and she talked about, um, me becoming more of an expert in a particular field, and we talked a lot about um, advancing advancing my career within data science, but also within a particular industry. and And actually, um, she funded my masters um, in medical robotics at wow. Imperial, um, and that was something that I'm very grateful that that she did because I definitely felt like I then became much more of an expert in a particular industry and and in within data science and within machine learning. And that's something that allowed me to progress within certain projects that we did with our, with our clients, but also find a particular niche that I really wanted to follow. And it was, yeah, so, so having done that master's that, um, you know, McLaren funded for me, which was fantastic. That was something that really made me realise that I had this particular passion for healthcare and that I could use the skills I had and the technology that we were creating and apply that into an industry that mm-hmm. could, could really make a massive difference. Um, So I went back to McLaren after finishing that masters and uh, took the research project that I was doing and we uh, tried to commercialize that with a number of our partners and this is actually how I found my next role. Um, So Touch Surgery which is a startup now called Digital Surgery in London. I met the CEO there, Jean, um, and we talked a lot about what technology could do within within the health space and this is particularly within particularly within surgery. Um, and so I was ha- kind of headhunted out of McLaren at that point into um, a role at Touch Surgery whereas head of data science. So it was definitely the route that I wanted to take to focus 100% on healthcare and and not be working across the different industries like I was at McLaren. Um, and it was also, also an opportunity to jump into a startup um, mm. where I knew that was something I wanted to do myself one day, but being able to ga- Gain that experience in a much smaller business that um, you know it was I think touch ledger at the time was maybe three or four years in but it was still a startup and it was still growing really fast and they were still trying to work out where to go and um, how to build the business and how to grow the team and so making that move into um, a leadership role within tech within a very small startup was Mm -hmm. A really exciting time, and I guess that's um, you know that's what prepared me to want to go and run my own business and understand mm. how that what that would look like. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think so no it does. I think
0: it's important to if you can to have that sort of like launch pad something in the middle because yeah. I think it can be so overwhelming to go from a big corporation to running your own thing and you're mm-hmm. suddenly alone or you're with one other person mm-hmm. and having something that's in the middle
1: where you get to actually feel what a start up feels like is yeah. is really great. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was a place where there were a lot more there were a lot more women in in tech. We were really trying to push to get more females um, in the team to the point where at one point we had so many females in the team we needed to get some more guys <laughs> in the team um, and that was a really great place to be. Um, yeah I don't remember where I was going with that. But, um, <laughs> what, did the compa- what does the company do? Um, so touch surgery uses um, technology to help surgeons to better train outside of the operating room um, so they have this saying within surgery which is see one do one teach one which is slightly terrifying so you know you you watch someone do a surgery um, you do the surgery and then you teach someone else to do it and um, it's it's highly dangerous and, and it's it's something that um, people are never quite prepared to to, um, to do these surgeries over and over again and, and there's not enough training in place for people to practice outside of the operating room and, mm-hmm. and not on patients. Um, and Jean and Andre who are both surgeons themselves saw this opportunity to create a place where people can train and they can standardize the way that training happens within surgery Mm. and that's so important um, for the safety of patients um, and for surgeons themselves to be able to actually feel confident in the way that they're going to go into Mm. surgery and operate and so it was a a great mission and something that aligned with the area that I wanted to be in, yeah, um, and to be able to kind of take that jump out of a much bigger organization into a startup, and, mm. and really feel like every every decision you, decision you made would have a real impact on that business in mm. that direction.
0: And then, how did you get from there to where you are now?
1: Um, so I was there for a, a couple of years, and I had always been thinking about the things I wanted to work on um, within my company, uh, and actually. Jean, who is a CEO, he we always joked about the fact that uh, one day I would have a job like his and, and be running my own company. And um, towards the end, we talked a lot about, you know, what I should be doing next. And um, he en- encouraged me to keep going and, and think about what my business could be and how I could launch that. And at the time, I had a few ideas of my own, but I didn't have a co-founder to do that with. Um,
0: and, and did you feel like you
1: had to have a co-founder? I felt like it would be beneficial to have a co-founder. And I think if the stats are around um, co-founder businesses or businesses with two founders are you know, much, much better above and beyond um, the stats for successful single um, founded businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes down to having two people with different skill sets, but with kind of Um, a shared mission that can really push a business faster and you can, you know, the two of you guys can, you know, it's not one plus one equals two, it's kind of one plus one equals three almost, you know, you've got these kind of complementary skill sets that really propel each other above and beyond what each of you could individually achieve Um, and so I thought it was really important to have someone that I could build a business with Um, and at the time I was talking to an old colleague of mine and she mentioned Entrepreneur First um, which I was actually just down the road from where I live, and I'd never heard of it, and I didn't, I didn't know what it, what it was, um, and it was a place where you can go with a few ideas, um, but nothing really solid, and without a co-founder, and they provide an, an environment for you to meet a co-founder, and to work on your ideas, and to actually launch a business within kind of three to six months. <laughs> um, so I kind of thought, well, what is there to lose at this point? Um, and that it was probably a great time to to give this a go, and I guess this is the kind of my third turning point, <laughs> which is, um, you know, actually, there's no perfect time to to launch a business, mm-hmm. um, and for me, it was, it felt right because it was a time when I'd spent certain um, years at McLaren and at Touch Surgery, kind of building towards this point, and it was something that I'd found out about uh, recently and thought you know, it's, it's time to give it a go and, and give it a try. Um, and it turned out very well. I met Rainer and we started Vine Health and we'll see, we'll see, we'll see where everything goes, but um, it was a fantastic place to be able to um, have the time and space to actually work on work on it properly. And how do your skill sets balance each other? Um, yeah something we sat down and, and thought about very early on was what are our individual superpowers if you like so you know are you um, a great manager are you great technically um, are you very commercial have you got a lot of business experience um, have you fundraised before you know um, but, but what are you really fantastic at and then what are the things that you want to learn um, and you know it's important that we have certain overlaps so making sure that we both have this certain goal around what we want to achieve and what that means for healthcare as an industry. Um, so she's a medical doctor. She spent a decade in um, in healthcare uh, on f- as uh, you know a, a doctor on frontline medicine, but also um, within health tech startups and within government policy and in changing patient behaviours. Um, and for me, always on the health tech side, but with a real focus on on, on healthcare and how we can change. Um, how, how we can improve healthcare for patients through technology and so that overlap of um, that shared mission was really important even though we have quite different skill sets mm. um, so you know I'm very much more on the technical side I really enjoy managing and building and growing technical teams and she really enjoys um, more of the commercial side and the business side and growing the business and, and fundraising and speaking to investors and clients um, and so that Complementary skill set is really important for us Mm. to to have in our team.
0: I wanted to ask about fundraising. So you raised Mm 80,000 already and you're looking to raise more. What's your experience been like with fundraising? And in particular, we know that it's more challenging for women to raise finances. Um, Has that been any part of your experience?
1: Yeah, um, so the fundraising that we raised initially um, was part of of EF, so halfway through the programme we pitched for um, the funding and so 16 companies, um, out of 35 <laughs> had, got funded um, through EF um, and that was kind of the first time that we had to pitch for investment and mm-hmm. I actually I think one thing there that's that's really important to say is that both of us realised that storytelling around our business was just as important as actually building a great business um, and something that I think we would both focused on which was building our business and making it um, or getting as far as possible and making it as as um, or, yeah, so so building our business to the point where um, we've got as much traction as possible and as much to show as possible was was the most important thing. But actually being able to tell a good story about how we're building it and where we want to go with, with the business was just as important a, as building it. And so, that's just something that I would throw out there and, and mm. advise anyone to, to think about carefully. Yeah, when like going build up the story around it. Yeah, making sure that you can tell a, a good story, that um, you can be consistent about where you want to go and where you want to take it and, and how that fits in with your mission and your long-term mission, but also what you want to achieve in the short term, we found was really important. Um, so yeah, that was a great experience and, and we got funded back in, in January and now we're fundraising for um, our seed round. So actually the, the stats for women in raising funding is uh, they're pretty shocking. Mm. So I think it's that one in three people going for VC funding are women, so it's about around 30%, but that ratio doesn't actually translate to the amount of funding that women actually receive. So only 12% of VC funding ever goes to female founders. Um, what's worse is that 2.7% goes to female CEOs and what's even worse than that is that only 2% of that funding goes to all female teams yeah. like myself and Raina um, so despite the fact that a third of, of those who are pitching for for fundraising are women only 2% of that funding ever gets actually, gets to double female founders that's crazy <laughs> isn't it it's awful yeah and and you know i think something that also is um, or something that makes it even harder is when you have female CTOs and, and technical females within the team. It's definitely something that I have felt you do have to, you do have a bit of extra scrutiny and that extra challenge to prove that you're technical enough to, uh, to be the CTO. Um, and, you know, that's a hard thing to deal with and it's just something that you've got to get on with and mm-hmm. you've got to, over prepare for these kind of questions and make sure that um, that you can that you can essentially overcome that. Yeah, that you're barrier. like almost having to prove yourself more. Yeah, absolutely, and it is something that we have found um, not with every investor, and but I think there is that underlying mm. like subconscious around what a CTO should look like, mm. um, and with these stats, like I just I don't understand
0: it. Like, why is it that? women are getting this little amount of funding. Is it that the investors are male and they're not connecting with the businesses? Is it a confidence thing? Like, I don't, I don't really understand
1: this data at all. Yeah, I, I think it is a bit of both. Um, I think traditionally, a lot of venture capitalists and um, big kind of investment firms have been very male dominated, a lot of kind of white males. Um, and if you're, a lot of people say that, you know, when you're making an investment or when you're pitching For investment, if uh, investors see themselves in the founders, that can be something that really sways them to want to invest. You know, building that rapport and being like, yes, we we believe in these guys. We see it, I see a bit of myself in that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think definitely having male led VC companies has been a problem in the past. And, you know, don't get me wrong, that landscape is changing. There are a lot of kind of women led VC companies that are popping up here and there that only invest in female founded businesses, which is great. Um, And bringing more females to the table within these VC firms and and not just gender diversity, but ethnicities as well. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a couple of firms popping up that are that only invest in in black female founders. Mm -hmm. um, And these are things that have to happen and have to change. And it does create an opportunity for women in tech. Um, and women should absolutely take that opportunity and and, and go and, and pitch for for that kind of funding. But it is slow to change. Mm. Mm. So yes, these, these stats are are ridiculous and yeah. hopefully they will get better over time as this VC industry is shifting. It's always um, like we have to do something
0: very exaggerated yeah. to try and sway it the other way because it's like there's so
1: many of these barriers it seems. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You do have to kind of push it, push the needle completely in the other direction to actually make that shift. Mm. Um, and you know, people might not like to see that, and and they might not like to see that there are these companies that are only investing in female-led businesses. But this balance has to change. And if that doesn't change, um, then you know we're going to have companies that are building tech for men by men, mm. um, and. That's never a good thing, and, and this bias that comes into building technologies and um, what actually gets to market is something that can really affect, mm. um, you know, half the population.
0: I'm so excited by femtech. I use all of it. You know, I use all yeah. these like apps for tracking my period and like all these different things. Yeah, so do that, I. Yeah, <laughs> that I feel like are so amazing. But we're we're only getting them now because women haven't been perhaps starting companies or getting the investment. So it's really it's really important that we invest in it for everyone.
1: Yeah, it's a really important shift in the market to actually have women working in, in on women's technologies, but mm-hmm. also men working on women's technologies has got to go both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't have technology that's just built for men by men. That's just... Yeah, it's, it's not it's going to so <laughs> work. <yeah>. Terrible. <laughs>
0: um, and for you, what would, what's the future looking like? What would be your dream for Fine Health?
1: Um, so I guess our big vision is that... Um, we will be able to support millions of people around the, around the world who are going through cancer um, to optimize not only their quality of life, but but their long-term survival. Um, and that technology will help us do that. So um, machine learning can, can really, and AI can really change the way in which we use data to optimize how people manage their health and, and um, help people to I guess better understand what they can do about their own health and not be completely in the dark or feel out of control um mm. unless they're there with their doctor and in, in, in their health systems our health systems are um our health systems need to well, we need to reduce burden on our health systems they don't have enough staff um, they don't have enough data about how to help patients they don't understand what patients do outside of the health system and that's something that technology can change and that's something that we want to change with Vine Health um, and the way in which we can bring new treatments and new drugs to patients around the world mm-hmm. that are developed for that wider population that are um, you know, in trials with females and not just white males under the age of 50. Um, that's so important for us to be able to bring new therapies to market much faster mm-hmm. um, and provide treatments to those who might not otherwise be able to get onto these clinical trials. Um, And so we see Vine Health as as the conduit by which we're going to be able to make that change. Yeah, well, I think it's an amazing
0: project and venture, and I I wish you all the best of luck with it. If people would like to find out more, um, where can they find you and and the company online?
1: Yeah, um, so you can go to vinehealth.ai, or find us on Twitter or Instagram at vinehealth underscore. Amazing, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe rate and review so more people can find the show until next time keep dreaming and achieving